What is your name? Uh, Levi S. Peterson. And uh, tell us a bit about your ancestors. Well, my middle name is Savage, and my, I, on my Savage, my mother's side, Savage, that's my mother's maiden name, the family goes quite a way back, in fact, to uh, John Savage, who was a private soldier in the, the uh, General Wolfe's army at the Battle of Quebec, and who, uh, after the battle, deserted, showing that the line I come from has a lack of uh, fidelity to England. But at any rate... Uh, Around what uh, year was that? Uh, 1769. Okay. And the, my savage ancestors uh, moved from Massachusetts to Ohio, uh, to New York, to Ohio, to Michigan, and along the way became Mormons and ended up in the exodus of uh, 47. In fact... Uh, my uh, first ancestor of my name, Levi Savage Sr., arrived in uh, Salt Lake Valley in 1847, uh, 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 but uh, a month or so after the Vanguard Company. And uh, his son, Levi Savage Jr., uh, migrated. Uh, went on a mission to Siam, uh, was in the Mormon battalion, was in the Willie's handcart disaster, and, and married uh, the, his two stepdaughters. So he was a full-scale polygamist and served time in the penitentiary. So everything that could happen to a pioneer Mormon happened to him. But my Peterson ancestors uh, are uh, a little tamer. Uh, my... Peterson ancestors migrated in 1862, so they arrived in Salt Lake uh, before the railroad came. And so I qualify for membership in the Daughters of the Utah Pioneers, uh, except for gender. But at any rate, uh, the, uh, that kind of heritage, of course, explains why I remain so firmly attached to Mormonism, I think. Absolutely. So, um, tell us a bit about your parents. Well, my <clears throat> my father was uh, Joseph Peterson. He was born in Lehigh, uh, and uh, was called on a uh, having being a graduate of BY Academy. He was called on a teaching mission to to Snowflake, Arizona, and uh, my mother uh, Lydia. Jane Savage, a daughter of Levi M. Savage, was born in a nearby town called Woodruff, uh, where her parents had migrated uh, uh, on a call from the church as pioneers. And my father was 19 years older than my mother and uh, taught her in the academy, but uh, she uh, got into an unhappy marriage and divorced soon and uh, was a grass widow for a number of years, and my father. What does that mean, grass widow? Divorced. Okay. Having no husband because of divorce. Okay. And uh, her uh, and my father's first wife, Amanda, died, and after a period, they 
corresponded and, uh, and got married. Uh, he having six children and she uh, two daughters. My dad had four sons, two daughters. She, my mother had two daughters. And they married, uh, combining their composite family, and had five sons together. So, and I was the last, so 13. <laughs> so uh, I came from a big family, and there's no distinction <clears throat> between those who, uh, for me, between my step-siblings and my full-siblings, except for the fact that step-siblings were all old enough to be my mother or father, and I tended to regard them as uncles or aunts for, for a while. But uh, as I grew up, uh, I came into full fellowship with them. But it wasn't like they, they went away. No, they were avail- around in, uh, in my growing up. And, and uh, many of their children, my nephews and nieces, were my full peers, uh, uh, not only in age but in uh, camaraderie. Uh, I bonded with them. And and uh, they're very much like brothers and sisters to me also. So uh, I come from a large, uh, inten- intense family. Uh, the familial bond is very strong in it still. There's still big family reunions, and I go to them. Uh, uh, the, the great multitude of descendants of my father and mother, uh, and Aunt Amanda, they were... Uh, I, 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 Ninety percent of them are active believing Mormons, and the other ten percent are backsliders. And I provide something of a bridge between them because uh, I, I get along comfortably with both sides of the family. But but the backsliders show up at funerals and reunions, and uh, while the uh, the believing side of the family is somewhat ill at ease with them, trying hard to make them feel comfortable, but not quite managing. Uh, they they still come and uh, I fraternize with them. But at any rate, uh, a, a big composite family is what I come from. Okay, lots of siblings. So, um, uh, so what was your childhood like? Well, I I was raised in uh, fairly primitive conditions without realizing it because. Uh, uh, Snowflake, Arizona in the 1930s. I was born in 1933 uh, in the middle of the Depression. My father had a salary because of his teaching at the high school. Uh, and we, we had something of a little farm. Uh, and everybody else in town was equally poor, so we I didn't grow up with a sense of poverty. Uh, but Snowflake uh, had a population of perhaps only 900 people, and it was, well, uh, I, I suppose, one of the largest towns in northern Arizona. There were two or three others on the railroad bigger, but uh, it was uh, range country and uh, very little water, and <clears throat> Snowflake was on a creek that ran year-round, and that's why it was there. <clears throat> uh I started grade school in the uh, first grade. It was an eight-year grade school and a four-year high school. And the grade school was across the street from my house, and the high school was just a block further away. Uh, the uh, I uh, felt comfortably a part of the not only my family but the town. 
And uh, I remark in my autobiography on uh, how Snowflake had fostered a, uh, in my childhood a piratical fraternity, and that was a figurative term referring to to me and my schoolmates and my other friends, uh, the friends of my older brothers and so on. And uh, my point was that we we were ordinary Mormon children and, and Christian children and believed as our parents believed and uh, knew what was right and wrong and we cheerfully disobeyed what was right and wrong and went about doing evil. Do you have any stories and, of a, a thing or two that might... Well, when exactly. coming home from a movie, urinate in the dust, write our names in the dust at night, the, there was a town movie because uh, uh, if your parents paid their award budget, they got the family got to go to movies Wednesdays nights and Saturdays and so as I say coming home from the movie on a Wednesday night writing my name in dust in the with urine and uh, irrigating at night seeing a skunk emerging from a ditch throwing the dog on it just to see what would happen and, and uh, the uh one time, my friends and I were uh, three friends, two friends and I were uh, loitering in our uh, our cow shed after a sacrament meeting on a Sunday afternoon, and and uh, the one of my nephews, a little younger, was on top of the cow shed, and one of my friends walked out of the cow shed, and the nephew above urinated on him, and he, the friend, had a magical power; he he could. Uh, uh, hold his foreskin tight and build up urinary pressure and eject a trajectory of urine, I suppose, 15 feet. And he did that often coming home from movies and so on, but this time he decided to, to punish my nephew who simply stood on the roof of the shed with his arms akimbo jeering at him. And so my friend ginned up his shotgun and fired and at that point I peered around the corner of the shed with my eye and spat at every square in the eye. Anyway, sorry about that. That's what I meant, kind of an evil childhood. That kind of incident was more or less commonplace and that nephew, incidentally, is a very pious man and he won't own up to that ever having happened. But it did. <laughs> uh, tell us just briefly about the conditions when you say humble circumstances, but you didn't know it. For someone who lives in the 21st century, maybe a, a young kid, they might have even no sense of scope of comparing their lives today to what... You, do you have a story or two or an example of well, what uh, life for you would have been like that, that may contrast kind of heavily with uh, what you know kids today might experience? Well, our house uh, had a large living room, uh, an, an added front room that had a hardwood floor in it and was our fancy room, uh, an indoor bathroom. I did grow up with an indoor bathroom, which not everybody in town did, and a very small kitchen, uh, 
two bedrooms. One of the bedrooms was heated with a wood stove. The dining room had a wood stove. The bathroom had a small wood stove. The kitchen, the bedroom I, I and f the one bedroom I and four brothers shared uh, had no, no uh, stove in it, and we certainly didn't have central heating. And and uh, though northern Arizona is generally summer uh, sunny and somewhat warmer than uh, uh, northern parts, the the plains of Arizona are susceptible to to air masses from Canada. Uh, coming down through the Great Plains and looping around into Arizona. We had temperatures at 30 below. My dad was a, he kept a rain uh, weather station and so I was aware of that. Uh, so we had to sleep under heavy loads of quilts and uh, my mother would fix a flat iron on a, on a cold night to put in bed, wrap it in a towel and put it in bed with us. And uh, the... Uh, early morning, uh, my mother would get out of bed. My father was older, and and uh, she did the, she built the fire in the living room and the, in the dining room and the kitchen. And there were no other fires in the house commonly during the week. Uh, you all winter long, you lived in those two rooms, including a very small kitchen. Uh, I was born in that house, so I was a brother, and uh, another brother was born in the kitchen before it was converted to a kitchen. So uh, the the uh, uh, that, 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 I guess that's self-sufficient. Uh, what about like farm labor, manual labor, you know? Well, we had our chores. We had chopper wood, get the chips, feed the chickens, feed the pig, you know, milk the cows. Yeah, uh, if we were... Uh, depending on our age. And my dad wouldn't do much of that. He, he was older, and he, he had my brother Charles milking cows at age seven. Uh, I was a little older before I got into it, but I, I could milk a cow and milk a lot of them. But, uh, yeah, we did our chores, and, uh, and my father had a small farm on the creek, and uh, we were required to... To uh, do our share of hoeing and and hay tromping, hauling hay, and so on, uh, in the summers, uh, ordinary farm chores in the winter. So yeah, we had those. Tell us a bit about um, the personality of your parents, your mom and your dad, or either one, and um, how that was an important part of shaping your formative years. Well, my father was, uh, I think. Uh, a very intelligent man uh, who uh, I think toyed with going to getting a, an advanced degree in anthropology. And in fact, he, he moved to his first family when he was married to his first wife to, uh, to the University of, the University of California at Berkeley to uh, pursue a degree in anthropology. But he left and came back to Arizona to, and hired on permanently there at the high school uh, after a year and a half because uh, he said from ill health, but he also, I think, was fleeing from uh, disbelief. I think he was maybe... Uh, in, the, in the LDS church? And in in Christianity. I think perhaps my father was... Uh, 
uh, instinctive skeptic, but he struggled against it and basically remained, well, he did remain an active Mormon all his life, and in fact, he made a strong contribution to the building up of northern Arizona and the church there because of his educational activities. Uh, he became county school superintendent in, after a while and uh, was very instrumental there. And he, and he uh, spent his last 20 years teaching English in the high school. He'd been a math and science teacher earlier, but a very, a very intelligent man. But he had a hobby, an interest in the Indians of northern Arizona that he pursued extensively. And that's why in my autobiography I called him a, called him a failed anthropologist. I think he wanted to be, but in the end he just became an amateur anthropologist instead of a professional one. My mother was a very intelligent woman, but uh, instinctively more faithful than my father and uh, probably more adamant in uh, obedience. Uh, she was somewhat... Uh, a mixture of severity and uh, in demanding obedience and in uh, affection. I never doubted the, my mother's love for me ever, and, and that's a, a nice thing to grow up with. You were her baby boy, right? I was her baby boy, and I think she felt that way. She was passionate about all her children, uh, very much a, a mother in Zion. But my father died when I was nine, at age seventy. Uh, and uh, my mother continued to raise her four, the four sons that were at home. Her first child by my father died in infant, uh, at th age three, but the four of us, other four of us grew up, and my mother cared for us even after my father's death, so she was a sturdy woman, and she did that. As I said, she would get up early to do that, build the fires and get the housework going. Uh, because my father, he was 50 when he married her, so uh, she was 30. But uh, uh, I, I think I've had, I had very, my father was not a, a, a person with whom I engaged deeply in an emotional way. Uh, he loved me and I loved him and he was a, uh, model for me, but my mother, my mother was much more influential on, on my character, and for, I suppose, in the eyes of some people, both good and bad. In that, uh, I, I think my, my uh, conflict with Mormonism has has a lot to do with the conflict with her. So, give us some examples, of some stories, maybe on both sides of that equation, that might illustrate uh, that tension. The uh, well, the well. I think you're, we're moving toward uh, maybe an area, uh, the um, time in my life that became significant when I was when I was older. Uh, um, when I till I left for college, I, I don't think I was. Uh, I. I uh, I was an, ob uh, an obedient Mormon, and uh, and I considered myself a happy uh, uh, young Mormon, uh, and I, and I still think I was. Uh, 
but when I went off to college uh, and uh, was uh, at the point of uh, of uh, trying to uh, to shift out of a ch uh, adolescent mentality into an adult mentality at age eighteen, uh, I uh, the I suppose I started on the road then toward. Uh, uh, disbelief and uh, re revolt against my religion. You know, in the uh, introduction to opening to my autobiography, I speak of my vexed and vexing relationship with Mormonism. And it has seemed that way to me ever since uh, my co early college years. That's when it began. Uh, was there a stage of just pure belief and devotion well, and dogmatic zealotry on your part? Yes, indeed. I, in fact, uh, my, I recall my very first religion class at BYU, Book of Mormon. I was not even 18 yet. The professor bore his testimony, and I had a distinct sensation of doubt, which frightened me. Uh, and I, uh, other things, other circumstances were involved that I narrate in my autobiography. But I, I immediately began searching for a testimony of my own, and I, I was on a three-year track. The th my three, uh, my three years of college before I went on my mission, I was uh, in an intense quest for my own testimony. Uh, I ended that era by going on the mission and then shortly <laughs> deciding I not only didn't have a testimony, I didn't believe anymore, uh, which made my mission complicated. But the, the, uh, my early college years were that period, and I had uh, bouts of, of disbelief, which I would smother and return to my more tranquil believing state, and I was a very zealous and scrupulous keeper of the commandments. And being my mother's son, I would have had to be. I've described myself as a Mormon monk, and there's some some validity to that that uh, description. Uh, I didn't manage to overcome the carnal man in myself too well, because at one point uh, uh, I even got so far into a into um, ardent petting with a girl, a college girl, that uh, I uh, henceforth figure, uh, thought of myself as a fornicator. And I even uh, ended up uh, at one point going to my bishop when I got home from my college year in the summer and confessing myself a fornicator. And uh, he handled it well, and uh, thank goodness. And, told me not to talk, it said I was forgiven and not talk about it with anybody else. And, uh, but it, but uh, in reflecting back on that, I've, I attribute I quite a bit of zealotry to myself to have brought my, induced me to do that kind of a thing that I certainly didn't want to do. Hmm. Uh, but uh, uh, yeah, I paid my tithing on the pittance of money I earned and I I fasted scrupulously and and I prayed night and morning and 
I did what you're supposed to do, you see. But uh, uh, in later years, and uh, uh, delving into my introspectively into my mind, I could see that a lot of what was going on was struggling between being like my mother and not being like her. So talk about, can you tell a story or two about what she would, that would illustrate what she was like that, that then made you drive towards trying in some ways to be like her and not like her? Just give us a, care, a, a sense for who she was and how she lived that, that would be, I don't know about colorful, but illustrative of what later led to tension. When I was a little boy, one day for play, I broke a slice of bread on a plate, took it into the living room where she was polishing the wax floor and offered her like a deacon a plate of the broken bread. Her face was horror-stricken, and she gasped, you must never, ever play like you're doing the sacrament. And I could see from the her face and her tone of voice that the big guy upstairs was a mean one. Mm-hmm. You had to approach him with caution. Mm-hmm. And uh, later on I would say uh, in my fiction I sought to uh, evaluate the costs of Christian belief. One of the costs, at least in my mother's life, was, uh, and I think numerous other Mormons, is that that uh, that God dispenses his blessings at a, a, the high price of a very scrupulous and strict and uncomfortable obedience. And what, what might I mean by uncomfortable? In her old age, when my mother stayed with Althea and me, uh, oh, six weeks or two months of the year, in the spring usually, uh, she... Uh, was deaf somewhat and a little senile, not too bad. Uh, but her daily, day-long entertainment or distraction was was crocheting afghans. And she'd do them over and over and over and give them all over the place. And everybody she was staying with, all my brothers and sisters and I, we would f- make sure she had her yarn and because it was a, a pleasure she loved, and it made her day tolerable. Well, Sundays, however, she wouldn't do her crocheting, and they were hellish. Uh, this I can tell you because she would stamp around the house. I'd take her to church, and that helped, and she might write a letter, and she'd read some scriptures, but then she'd simply get sigh and, and uh, move about angrily and... And I'd say, I don't think Heavenly Father would mind if an elderly woman did a little crocheting on the Sabbath, but no way. It was, it was not, uh, it was her work. you weren't to work on Sunday, and that was her work. Now, that, that's the kind of woman we're dealing with, that uh, yeah, the, the costs, the, the costs of God's protection and benefits uh, were high. That was my observation. And so you, you in your own self felt split between trying to honor that and, and trying to say this discomfort maybe isn't worth it. 
well, or, or can't be what a good a God well, that I want to sign up to would require. Over the long haul, I decided I, I'm not a near religious man, but I do not believe in that kind of a God, and I won't. And I'm told by my Mormon confreres, well, we don't. We believe in a benign, easy-going God. And I say, that, that is not what I'm intuiting when I go over to my gospel doctrine class. That's not what I'm intuiting. I'm feeling a lot of vibes that say you've got to keep your eye on the big guy because uh, you've got to be obedient. And obedient to a, a long list of things that a lot of people would just call, would think were not very important. Obedience for their own sake, for its own sake. So...